Well, we are in a series that we're calling Connect. And just to kind of remind you of how the series goes, uh, our values are connect and impact, and here's how that works. As we connect with God, he then sends us to connect with others, and that order is really important. We don't connect with others out of our own resource, out of our own abilities. We first connect with God, and then God impacts our lives, changes us, gives us the resources that we don't have in and of ourselves to then go and connect with others. That's the order. We connect with God, and then we connect with others. We don't treat people as they deserve. We don't treat people as they treated us. We treat people the way God has treated us. And that's a big difference, right? We live in a world when people kind of do us wrong. They say things, they do things, they abuse, they exploit. And our natural response is to treat them in kind or to treat them in a worse fashion or to treat them as we think they may deserve based on the motives we're giving to them. But the message of the gospel is we treat people the way God has treated us. Notice the order again. As God has connected with us, we then connect with others. Don't mix up the order. If you mix up the order, you enter on a self-help mission that will always end in frustration and failure. As we connect with God, he then sends us to connect with others. And we've actually designed the series so that every other week we're looking at a connection with God and in the other weeks a connection with people. And so as we connect with God, then we get a one another passage that tells us how to connect with others based on how God has connected with us. Well, this morning, we're going to look at maybe the most familiar connection passage in the Bible. And that appears in Acts chapter 9, and that's where God, Jesus, connects with Paul. His name is Saul at the time, and this encounter changes Paul and history forever. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read the, of that encounter, and then we'll kind of work our way through it, and I'll tell you how we're going to work our way through it after I finish. Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, that's Paul, his name gets changed here. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, that would be church, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he said. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man 
and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. He has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, as I said, that's a familiar passage. And I'm probably not going to give you lots of new things this morning. But here's how we're going to look at it. I'm not sure if you noticed, but when we have baptism, we always ask those people getting baptized to write their testimony, to write their story, and we give them the three categories we want them to write in. We want them to write about a before. What was your life like before you met Jesus, before you connected with God through Jesus? What is your life like now after that connection? So what is your life before? What's your life like now? And then the last section, tell us about the what. Tell us about the how. Tell us about that connection, how it went. How did your encounter with Jesus affect you? A before and after, a what and a how. So I thought since we're kind of in the middle of a baptism month, we had baptism the first week of the month, we're having baptism uh, next week, uh, last Sunday of the month, I thought we'd use that same outline to look at Paul. Paul obviously has a before, and in, the ver and in the chapter that I read, you noticed at the beginning it says, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats. Well, in the before, what in the world's going on? Paul becomes the author of all this stuff in the Bible, and yet he's breathing out these murderous threats. What's going on? Well, let me tell you about Paul before. Before we meet Paul, he's a Pharisee. Now, I know we're in church. If you went to Sunday school, Pharisee is kind of a bad word, right? But you've got to remember, in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were like the super religious guys. They were really moral. RS students this summer have been working their way through different spiritual disciplines, right? Paul would have been the champion at spiritual disciplines, right? As a Pharisee, he not only attended church irregularly, he attended church all the time, almost continuously. He would go regularly to pray. Okay, so let's think of the spiritual disciplines that you may practice or that our students have learned about. Say their prayers. Pharisees prayed tenaciously and continuously. Paul was a Pharisee. He prayed all the time. They studied the scripture. He not only knew what the scripture said, he was devout. He was living what it said. He was more obedient than anybody you know. He fasted. He fasted weekly, not every day, but he would fast one or two days a week to focus his attention on what God wants, to show those pains driving him to look at God and to look at himself. He would have practiced meditation. He would have been a student of the scripture seeking to live out what the scripture says. Paul was a great guy. In fact, in most of our churches, and to be honest, probably here at Calvary Church, he would have been an example lifted up before all of us to say, this is what life should be. 
a life of prayer, a life of Bible study, a life of obedience. Paul has his act together. That was the before picture, though. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But then something happens. How does Paul the Pharisee become Paul the persecutor? Right In this chapter, it begins by saying, Paul's on a mission. And his mission is to round up Christians, bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and execution. We first meet Paul two chapters before. You can check it out today. It's raining, not much happening. Uh, check it out in Acts chapter 7. What's going on? Stephen gives the first sermon, the first Christian sermon. I read it. It's pretty good, actually. Kind of gives you a summary of all this Old Testament history stuff. But by the time the sermon is finished, Paul the Pharisee is so ticked off that he puts Christians in the crosshairs of his life. What in the world did Stephen talk about in that sermon? Let me tell you. He said a few basic things. Number one, the temple is obsolete. Well, that got Paul's attention, right? The temple's obsolete. Paul is a Pharisee. His life revolved around the temple. Sacrifices are insufficient. Paul was counting on the animal sacrifices to make up for all of his lacks. He's counting on the innocent animals paying for his sin. And all of a sudden, Stephen says, oh yeah, all those sacrifices are insufficient. Third point, even worse, and your goodness isn't nearly good enough. Boy, my guess is Paul kind of bristled at that one, right? You don't know how good I am, Stephen. Let me tell you. I say my prayers. I go to church. I read the Bible. I know the Bible better than you do. I obey what the Bible says. I'm checking all the boxes. I've got my act together. Stephen says, your goodness isn't good enough. Boy, the first three points of that sermon, Paul is livid, right? And he's livid because he's dedicated his life to the very things that Stephen is saying are now done away with. He built his life on a foundation that Stephen says cannot support you. Well, rather than question the foundation, Paul wants to get rid of Stephen. Oh yeah, but Stephen is just communicating the message that Jesus brought. Therefore, anybody else following Jesus, they need to go too. Now, why would Paul go to Damascus? Well, he wants to snuff this heresy out early on, right? If you remember, right after Stephen's sermon, persecution now breaks out, right? The Jews are trying to round up these Christians and silence this message. And so all of the Christians then scatter. Some of them scatter to Damascus. Why would Paul want to go to Damascus? Because Damascus was at the crossroads of the Roman Empire. If the, Paul began to think, boy, if those crazy Christians make it to Damascus... No telling where this crazy message can go. It'll go north and south and east and west. We need to get rid of it. I'm going to Damascus. He takes off for, see how that's working? Oh yeah, and the last point of the sermon, Jesus fulfills it all. What? The temple's obsolete. Sacrifices are insufficient. Your goodness isn't nearly good enough, but Jesus fulfills it all. That drives Paul nuts. In fact, that sermon so reverberates in Paul's mind that it becomes the central focus of the rest of Paul's life. 
Let me just give you a little snapshot of that here. Um, Luke wrote the book of Acts, right? Paul didn't, right? Luke wrote it. But Luke was not there when Stephen gave the sermon. Luke wasn't there. But that sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon, that's the longest sermon that we have recorded in the book of Acts. But Luke wasn't there. But who was there? Paul was there. How did Luke get all the nitty-gritty details of Stephen's sermon if he wasn't there? Because Paul told him. When they traveled together, that sermon wouldn't let Paul go. And my guess is that during their journeys, Paul would often say to Luke, boy, that sermon has so gripped me. That sermon has been part of what God has used to change me those principles have become the pillars of my life. Interesting, isn't it? Well, that's the before. He was a Pharisee, then a persecutor, and Stephen's sermon kind of drove him to that persecution. He thinks he's upholding God's glory, right? He thinks he's doing the right thing. He's going to snuff out this heresy. He's, the, he's super religious, right? That's what's driving Paul. Okay, now how about the after? This is the Paul we know, right? Paul gives up his Pharisee connection and becomes a preacher. Rather than despising Gentiles, he now becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. His former enemies, Christians, those of the way, now become his friends. Rather than taking letters to round up the Christians to prosecute and execute, he now sends them letters explaining theology and explaining how they can more closely follow Jesus. Oh yeah, he writes 13 books of the New Testament. 13 letters become books of the New Testament. There are only 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. And yet when we first meet him, he's wanting to snuff out this new religion. What in the world happened to the guy? He connected with Jesus. And based on his connection with Jesus, he then connects with other people. That's all we're called to do, right? Connect with God. Connect with others. The order is all important. You know, let me just, uh, before we look at the what and the how, uh, let me just try to fix a little bit of a misconception we have. You know, sometimes people in our day picture Jesus as only, you know, pretty Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, perfect gentleman. And now, I'm not making fun, right? Um, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He's a perfect gentleman. He will never barge in. Yeah, that's one verse. My guess is Paul felt like, it, Paul sure felt like Jesus barged in right here, right? I mean, he's on his way to Damascus. Jesus knocks him on his butt, and so the other side of Jesus, we sang this morning, he's a lion and a lamb. He's not just a lamb. He's a lion and a lamb. You stand in, in opposition to God's purposes, yet be prepared. Um, God's purposes will be fulfilled. And sometimes that connection with God isn't all warm and fuzzy. Sometimes that connection leaves us a bloodied, bruised, and lying on our back, just like it did for Paul. 
Well, kind of what and how now? How did the connect? It's actually more of a collision than a connection, right? Paul's on this mission. He's headed to Damascus. He's going to, uh, you know, eliminate the world of this heresy. And on his way, sees a bright light, kind of blinded, turns away. Next thing you know, he's on the ground addressing an answer or addressing this question. Saul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Um, did you notice Paul actually doesn't answer the question? You wouldn't have either. He asks a perfectly obvious question. Who are you? Right? Um, you're obviously pretty big and strong and bright and shiny right here, so um, I would not be persecuting you. I'm afraid right now. Who are you? And with Jesus' answer, Paul's world fell apart. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Remember what his life was like before? Build around the temple, build around the sacrifices build around his own goodness, measuring up to the rules that he extracted from the scripture. And Jesus was nothing. He was just a heretic. All of a sudden, he meets Jesus on the road, and Paul's world is now torn apart. In fact, literally, here's what happened. Paul saw in his mind the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament that he knew much better than any of us in this room knew. He saw that ripped to shreds and then reassembled in a way he never thought possible. You see, he read the law and the prophets, but he understood how they all worked, right? The law did this, you know, the law kind of set up the rungs on the ladder, and I need to do it. The prophets are encouragement to climb the ladder well. All of a sudden, that law, that Old Testament, Paul saw it ripped to pieces, but then put back together in a way that he didn't think it could fit back together. Jesus now isn't the one that's cursed. He's not the one that's condemned. He's not the heretic. He actually is the fulfillment of the temple and the sacrifices and the only way that we can find goodness and acceptance. Paul's world's rocked. You know, but sometimes we look at the incident, and I don't know how many things I've read and I've heard people say, oh yeah, but all that happens instantaneously in Acts chapter 9. No, it doesn't. Acts chapter 9 begins a process. The process actually goes on the rest of his life, but the process in the immediate context goes on at least three days. Paul's blinded. He's not blinded for an instant. He's blind for three days. What does Jesus say? Jesus does not say, Paul, now that you know who I am, you need to admit your sin, open your heart, and receive me as your Lord and Savior. That's not what he says. What's he say? Go into Damascus and wait. I'll eventually send someone that'll help open your eyes. That's a process, it sounds like to me, right? Now think about it. He's blind. He's not eating or drinking for three days. He can't watch TV. He can't play with his phone. He can't put music on. He's blind and he doesn't eat and drink for three days. What in the world does he do? He thinks, that's what he does. And he prays. And he thinks an awful lot about that crazy sermon Stephen preached, don't you think? The temple is obsolete. How can that be? 
sacrifices are in. Ah, that doesn't make sense. My goodness isn't. Jesus is the fulfillment. I, I just met him. The reassembling of the Bible begins to happen in the three days. And as it's reassembled, it's reassembled with Jesus as the point and the purpose. You see, the way Paul put it together before, Jesus was kind of superfluous. He wasn't even necessary. He's not required. But in the new assembly, Jesus is front and center. He is the place where people meet God. That's temple. He is the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate high priest. It's all coming together. And Paul's wrestling with that. Three days. Can't see. Not eating. Thinking. And praying. You know, I, I've read some scholars that have said, the rest of Paul's life and all of his letters just expound what happens in Acts chapter 9. You remember what uh, Jesus said to him? Why are you persecuting me? You know, the unifying theme that most theologians believe, the unifying theme of all of Paul's theology is union with Christ. That's the number one, that's what Paul writes about. And another way we offer me that in Christ, we're in Christ, Christ in us, we're in him. Where's that come from? Acts chapter nine. How in the world it, can Jesus, or excuse me, how can Paul be persecuting Jesus? He's persecuting Christians. Yeah, but Jesus so identifies with his people that if you persecute them, you're persecuting Jesus. And if Jesus is wounded, he's not only wounded for himself, they're wounded in him. That, that's union with Christ, right? That's all that Paul does. And all of a sudden, the themes of the sermon that Stephen preached become the themes of all of Paul's letters. You read it. Read Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. You read through Romans. It's just Stephen's sermon over and over again in great detail. Union with Christ. The Old Testament has been ripped to shreds, but reassembled with Jesus as the center. Paul's world is rocked. He's forever different. And now he connects with people through writing and conversation and sending. And it all, it all begins in Acts 9. Notice, connection with God leads to connection with people. Connection with Christ leads to one another. That's the right order, and we see it in Paul. Well, we're going to kind of wrap up the series next week when we have baptism, and we'll tease out some of the main themes, and we'll talk about one another's and how to do it. But I want to end today with a the main question of the whole season and the whole summer. Have you connected with Jesus? I didn't ask you if you go to church. You're in church on a rainy morning. I know you go to church. That's not the question. Have you connected with Jesus? I didn't ask you if you say your prayers. Life gets so difficult, everybody prays at some point, right? I didn't ask you if you said your prayers. I asked you to be connected with Jesus. I didn't ask you to read the Bible. You know the Bible, memorize the Bible. Some of you have done that. I didn't ask you that. Paul had you beat in all of those categories, but that was before. He went to church. He said his prayers. He read the Bible and sought to obey what was there. And he did, did a better job obeying than all of us on the after side. I didn't ask you to obey it. I asked you to be connected with Jesus. Use the themes of Stephen's sermon to answer my question.
Is religious affiliation your main thing? Coming to Calvary Church, watching online, is that kind of your main thing? You could do that just as easily before rather than after. Is the Bible your thing? Practicing spiritual disciplines? Maybe you even fast, meditate? Have you connected with Jesus? Do you know that religious affiliation won't cut it? Sacrifice, yours, others, insufficient. Your goodness isn't nearly good enough. Jesus fulfills it all. Have you connected with Jesus? Admitting those things, telling them to Jesus, not not to me, will bring about a connection that will change you forever. You know, sometimes I feel like we try to do the one another side without the connecting with Jesus side first. Process is all important. Connect with God through Jesus. Then go one another each other as Jesus one another's you. Look, you can do that this morning. Acknowledge the realities that Paul acknowledged. It's not your effort, not your obedience, not your Bible study, not your pray, not, not your prayers, not your church attendance. Those things are far inadequate and will cause you to be condemned forever. Ask Jesus to forgive you. He will. And when you connect or maybe collide with him, You'll be ready then to one another, some other people. Let's pray. Father, the process of connecting with you through Jesus at times sounds real easy, and we make it seem warm and fuzzy. But Lord, there's a real downside and a hard side and humiliating side to that. It's acknowledging that our lives and our efforts and all the stuff we do cannot accomplish acceptance and forgiveness. Lord, would you uh, remind us anew of those things this morning? And Lord, if there are people here that have never connected with Jesus, Lord, I pray as they think about Paul's connection, the realities of Stephen's sermon, and the insufficiency of their own life, would they connect with him today? And for those of us that have already connected at some point, Lord, we need continual connection, not necessarily for salvation, but to remind ourselves and to remember. Help Paul's example to lead us to the way. The temple's obsolete. Sacrifices are insufficient. My goodness, not good enough. Jesus fulfills it all. We pray in his name. Amen.